So this evening, I'd like to say some words about loving ourselves and about working with some of the obstacles to that self-love. And I'd like to invite you, as I speak, really to practice staying embodied. The Buddha described it as, as being aware internally and externally. And some people find it helpful to think in terms of giving 50% of their attention to their embodied experience, the experience of body and heart, and 50% to what they're hearing. It's part of the practice of bringing our mindfulness into relationship with the world. And you might like as well, during the talk, at any moment that you think of it, just to do a turn of the metaphrases, just so that you keep connected with that practice and you infuse your sense of presence with, with kindness, with goodwill towards yourself. And as we sit and we, we walk here over these days, don't we just see how, how presence comes to feel the same as love? that when we're really present for our bodies and our hearts, it has a flavor of love. And we can notice in those moments where we abandon ourselves, either because we're lost in a memory or a fantasy, or maybe because we're listening to a talk and are uh, out there, that that absence we also can feel as a lack of metta. So I'd really invite you during this time just to practice being present to yourself in a loving way as you listen. I'd like to uh, read a few lines from a poem that some of us here may know. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch that it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. For everything flowers, I'll say those lines again, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and, it, and in touch that it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And I think that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're retelling ourselves in words and in the loving touch of our, our awareness. We're retelling us ourselves 
of our own loveliness. I think it's a really beautiful and helpful way to think of this practice as a practice of self-blessing. And in many ways, this, this self-blessing and this, this re-teaching us of our own loveliness is also a reparenting, a self-parenting, a bringing of a more and more unconditional love into our attitude to ourselves, a deep acceptance of our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. The Buddha, in his his words on metta, compared the practice of metta to a mother. He said, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings. And we could add, including ourselves. And there's a a beautiful way in which as we hold our bodies, in the way that we've been doing this today, hold our bodies in in a tender awareness. It is almost like cradling ourselves in our arms, in the arms of our love. Cradling ourselves in the intentions that the phrases express, the metaphrases express. And sometimes as we do this, what arises is pain and difficulty. The pains of our heart, the pains of our bodies. And some of you spoke about this in the, the group discussions this afternoon. And this may be something that you've experienced during today. And when that happens, we, we can learn skillful means of working with that. And there are a range of means that are available to us. And we'll be saying more about these during the week. I think given the particular focus of this week uh, on the meta practice, we're really encouraging you to keep the meta practice going, even if something difficult is arising. And see what it's like to include that in your metta practice so that you're saying the phrases and you're also including the pain in your back or the sense of sadness that has come into your heart or the sense of boredom that may be here or the sense of anxiety. This can be an inclusive practice. And at other times it may also be skillful to turn more fully to what you're experiencing, the the well, what Ajahn Chah used to call the orphan of consciousness, those, those aspects of our experience that we may somehow have pushed away and rejected, that in a retreat setting and when we're, we're practicing a sense of kindness may, may visit and, and may ask for some blessing, some self-parenting, some acceptance. So it may be helpful to turn to it more directly and really practice accepting it 
meeting it with kindness, infusing our, our mindfulness of it with a sense of tenderness and care. And as we do this, we may notice that what this practice at times feels like is not so much befriending a self as befriending one moment after another. Can I meet this moment with kindness? And this moment with kindness? And in this way, our capacity for love and for metta is enlarged. And the Buddha gave very helpful teachings about the form in which some of these more difficult moments may arise. And this is his list of the hindrances, which will be familiar to many people here. And they may not have been your experience today, but all of us at times have to work with the hindrances. And these are a list, the list really of, of the five perennial ways in which our presence, in which our clarity gets obscured. And so this list is, is sense desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And I find this such a compassionate and helpful teaching because it's so easy to take these experiences personally when they arise and to really to judge ourselves for our exhaustion or our sleepiness or the fact that all day we've been unable to find a comfortable way of sitting and so we've been feeling restless. And and so just to know that these are visitors that visit every heart uh, and... uh, It's not that we have to expect them, but we shouldn't be surprised by them if they arise. The way that that desire, sense desire, fixates us on our wants, on some experience that we're reaching towards. Aversion in, in its many different forms, which may include irritation or boredom or judgmentalism or just trying to push away some experience, presents itself. Sleepiness, the, the clouds, the fog, the dullness, the lethargy that can descend. Restlessness, restlessness of body and mind, where we can't really find a sense of steadiness. And doubt, where we we may ask, can I do this? Does this practice work anyway, or is it just wishful thinking? Maybe I should have done the Sufi dancing week instead. (laughs) And uh, these hindrances can present themselves in the form of, of multiple hindrance attacks. And I'm going to say a bit more about one form that those can take in a moment. But I'd like just... Before that, just to say a little bit about sleepiness, restlessness and doubt, because I think when we make this big sort of energetic shift into a retreat context, those can be particularly 
familiar visitors. This, um, this practice of metta, as some people noted this afternoon in the group, it takes some energy. It reminds me of a cartoon I, I saw a few years ago where there was this guy praying with a scowl on his face, saying, I asked you very nicely to make me a better person, but it seems like you just can't be bothered. <laughs> you know, the, the, the transformation of our hearts doesn't happen on its own. It takes effort. It takes commitment. Uh, and in the face of, of particularly, I think, um, sleepiness and dullness and lethargy, I think sometimes what we need to do is to galvanize our energies. There's a, a deep truth in the, in the saying that, that effort creates energy. And I think there's a real feedback loop that we can experience with meta practice. It takes effort to say the phrases, to do the practice. But my goodness, it also really can bring a lot of energy in response to that effort, as some of you, I think, have been finding today. But if you are finding yourself weighed down by the fog, really doing things that will energize, so that maybe opening the eyes, looking up, using the white light, really turning up the, the brightness um, dial on, on the white light, that, that you may be using in the visualization. Standing up. I always love to see people standing in the meditation hall because it feels like they're really sort of making a commitment to making the most of this time. So please feel welcome if, if you're in the middle of a meditation, you're really struggling with sleepiness. Please feel welcome just quietly to stand because you're unlikely to fall asleep when you're standing or if you do, your body will wake you up pretty quickly. I find it really helpful, particularly on a, a short, short retreat like this, just to remember the preciousness of this time and to, to sort of say, well, okay, I'm battling with sleep, sleepiness, but if not now, when? You know, when am I really going to, to work at this? When am I really going to commit to, the, to my own well-being? And that, just that reflection... You know, none of us knows how long our lives are going to be. And just to have a sense, this time is precious, can really energize the mind. And if it's been the opposite restlessness that you've experienced today, then really using this practice to soothe and smooth your nervous system really using the sense of embodiment and breath. There's a lovely way in which that sense of self-blessing can be a very calming gesture that we bring to ourselves. And so, being patient with restlessness, sometimes finding a place in the body that isn't restless, you may well find your feet are really not too restless or your hands are not too restless, and you can use those as an anchor for your attention that will help to calm your system down. If there is a lot of energy in the body, there's also a, 
a remarkable way in which if you perceive that, try seeing that energy as metta, it can really help to transform it. It can really help to nourish your metta practice. So if there's a sense of energy or vibration around, just try seeing that internal vibration as metta, seeing it as a sort of circulation of kindness. And that can be very helpful. Any of the hindrances can feed doubt. And we can feel when we're sort of plugging away at the practice, can we, we can feel, gosh, is this really getting me anywhere? Uh, and, and I'd really, I think Rob and I would really encourage you to, to trust this planting of the seeds. Don't do what I did as a child, which was when I planted a seed, I would go and dig it up and see if it had germinated again. It didn't give it a chance, you know. And there's something about really planting the seeds of intention, and trusting, trusting that nature will take its course, trusting that the drops will fill the bucket. And I think with all of these hindrances, uh, recognizing what you're experiencing is very important. That's really why I'm mentioning this list this evening, just so that if any of these five is showing up at any stage, you can recognize that's what's happening. And you can practice bringing a kindly acceptance to that as part of your experience in the moment. And I'd like now to talk a a bit about one of these multiple hindrance attacks. It's a, uh, a pattern that we've mentioned today, that's been mentioned today, that really can cause us so much suffering. And that's the, the experience, the, what should we call it, the, the character structure, the, the, the phenomenon of the inner critic which in, in different ways can involve all the different hindrances in different forms. And in the silence of, of a retreat, it can sometimes be highlighted. And I think particularly early on in a retreat, it can get highlighted when we're sometimes struggling with the hindrances. And this inner critic is that, that inner voice that puts us down, that is filled with self-judgment, self-blame, that nags at us, that snipes at us, that constantly compares us either with somebody else or with some imagined ideal, that is full of shoulds, that tells us you should be different from how you are, you shouldn't be experiencing like this. You should be better at meditating given how many years you've been doing it. You shouldn't be falling asleep when you've paid to come on retreat. All those inner accusations, I didn't do that right. 
I always get it wrong. I don't like how I look. I look ugly. There's something wrong with me. I'm inadequate. I'm unlovable. There's something bad about me. These, these really harsh attacks that we can find our mind delivering to ourselves. Sometimes the attack is inwards, sometimes it's outwards, sometimes that critical voice gets turned out to others. It's the same phenomenon. I'm going to be speaking particularly this evening about the way we attack ourselves. And this may feel so familiar and pervasive that, that it's sort of unconscious. It's just how we experience ourselves. There can almost be a sense, well, what would I be without it? We can live in, in what one, one Dharma teacher calls a trance of unworthiness where we're constantly overshadowed by this sense of not being good enough in one way or another. And this can have really a, a, a truly sort of devastating effect on our lives. It can, can engender such a degree of self-consciousness and shame that it really limits our self-expression and our confidence in expression. It can, it can bring a sense of unworthiness into our relationships, including so painfully our intimate relationships, where, where we project judgment onto our friends and onto our partner in a way that really creates a block in the flow of communication and of love. It can prevent us from really giving our gifts and sharing our abilities in our work. And at its most crushing, it can really bring a sense of despair and self-hatred, where we can really have a sense of somehow not belonging. And this can be, uh, we often seek to anaesthetize this with, with addictions of various sorts. And part of what I want to say is that this is very common. Although part one of the effects of it is that we can feel very isolated. This is a very common experience. It seems to be a, a particular phenomenon in, in Western culture for, for historical and, and cultural and philosophical reasons. There are all these stories of, of, of Eastern um, monks, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, coming to the West and being so shocked at the level of self-judgment and self-hatred that, that seems so prevalent amongst Western people. It's important to say, however, that, that not everybody does experience this. Some people never do. And some people do, and then because of the way in which they work on it, they no longer do. I, I think this is really important to say that it is possible completely to uproot this habit. 
really want to give you a sense of hope about this, that, 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 that it is a, a, a pattern that can feel deeply ingrained, but it is workable with. And people make remarkable journeys from states of torture with self-criticism to states of real relief and freedom. And so I'd like just to, to offer a few uh, thoughts and reflections and suggestions for ways of working with this if this is an experience that you struggle with or that you are working with. Because really for most Westerners, this is the main obstacle to self-love, to loving ourselves. Really to weaken, quieten, uproot the, inner, the habit of the inner critic is to free ourselves into a new unconditional quality of meta for ourselves. And the first, the first uh, thing to say really is to give it space the inner critic is an aversive habit. And if we feed that, if we meet that aversion with aversion, we're trying to squash it, we're trying to push it down, trying to suppress it, that will feed the aversion. If we meet aversion with aversion, it just makes, makes for more aversion. So give it space, allow it room. If you give it a little space, it'll occupy all of that. If you give it a lot of space... It can't occupy all of that. And there's room for other qualities such as mindfulness, kindness, investigation to come to be brought in in relation to this, this critic. And the second suggestion is, is really about holding it with, with kindness. You can probably feel in those moments where this critical voice is strong that there's, there's pain, there's real discomfort in the body as well as in the heart. Some traditions talk about this phenomenon as, as, a, as like a core wound and it can really feel like that. It can really feel sort of inflamed at times. And so it's so helpful to surround that with a sense of kindness. Rob used the image earlier of, of, of like waters of kindness lapping. And you can have that sense of, of can, I, can I hold this inner critical voice and the, the pain that it causes, can I surround that with a sense of kindness? Can I bathe it in a sense of kindness? And sometimes that can be a very physical sense, the, t the tightness in the heart that we feel connected with that voice, just holding that, the area around that with a sense of softness, kindness. And then really key is to be interested in it, to investigate it. one of the very helpful understandings of this path is that it, to turn your interest and investigation to something is part of freeing yourself from it. 
It's very hard to be fully stuck in something that you're interested in. So be interested in what is going on when this critical voice is around. What happens in the body? Where do you notice the tightness? What happens in your posture? What happens in your breathing? Can you feel this, this sense of trance that, that is often associated with it? Sort of slightly dissociated quality to the way we perceive Suffering tends to have the character of building, of, of, of sort of gluing itself together so that it can feel somebody earlier was saying it's like a sort of dark black quality, this judgmental voice. And actually just to see these sort of constituent parts can help just to undo some of the, the gluing and the sort of accumulation that's taking place. And really important, really important, is to be interested in and investigate your relationship with the critical voice, the blaming voice. Are you believing what it says? Probably but it's really worth noticing that, that we can take it, it sort of becomes my voice. It has this quality of I about it. So it can feel like it has the whole authority of my belief behind it. But of course, it only has the power that we give it. Its only authority comes from the power that we give it. So really to see it is not you and it's not telling the truth. It can be helpful sometimes to sort of imagine it up here and say, okay, so thank you for your opinion, you know, rather than, you know, rather than feeling it it's sort of somehow in here shaping how I experience the world. Just see it as something out there that you relate to. And say, okay, thank you. You've given your view on that. I've heard you. That just allows some of the sense of doubt in that can really shift our relationship with it. Another really helpful question to ask is, what exactly am I believing about it? What exactly am I believing what when you know what when push comes to shove am i really believing about myself at the core of this and that can also help to highlight what am i getting from it in what way is this inner critical voice serving me sometimes it it, it could just give a sense of familiarity we're so used to it that it gives us our sense of identity, either within ourselves or even our sort of social identity. We're used to doing ourselves down. We're used to making ourselves less than everybody else. Sometimes it can feel like it's giving us a sense of protection. It's somehow protecting us from making a fool of ourselves or exposing ourselves in some way. People sometimes say, I don't really want to be rid of it because it makes me feel safe. 
and I think part of what bringing mindfulness to it does and bringing metta to it, to it helps to, us to show that actually there are far better protections on offer than the inner critic will ever provide. Another strategy that people sometimes find helpful is to dialogue with it, to speak to it. So you hear it say, huh, you fell asleep in another meditation. You're no good at this, are you? And you can turn to it and you can, you can ask it. You can say, so what exactly is it about falling to sleep that means that I'm no good at meditation? And you can have this sort of conversation with it. And you can begin to expose the fact that actually it's irrational. It, it, it's sort of logic is illogic. It's groundless. It doesn't actually have a base in the real world. You can even say to itself, well, okay, if I really achieved a meditation where I was able to be with the metaphrases throughout the 45-minute sitting, would you be satisfied? And if it's honest, it would probably say no. <laughs> you know? And you begin to see then, what is this? This isn't actually... A, a, a real demand. This is just a habit of mind that is compulsive and endless if I allow it to be. It can't actually stand up to that sort of... You're much more intelligent than it, I think is the point. We're much more intelligent than it. And we need to bring some of that intelligence to bear as we challenge its authority. Now, all that I've said so far has really been about helping to weaken the inner critic, helping to, to calm it, really to uproot it, really to uproot it. We have to see it for what it actually is. And to do that, we need, I think, to look at the, the, the teachings that the Buddha offered about self-view. In the Buddhist understanding that the self is not some substantial, continuous, solid phenomenon. A sense of self arises in those moments where there is grasping or pushing away. It may be more accurate, in fact, to talk not so much about a self as about selfing. So selfing and grasping turn out to be the same thing. When there's grasping, when there's clinging, when there's identifying with something, a sense of self arises. And that sense of self that arises has the flavor of whatever it is that we're grasping to. If it's pleasant, there'll be a pleasant sense of self. Ah had a sitting where I felt calm and peaceful. I'm really getting the hang of this. You know, and this, we cling hold of that, make a self out of it, and we feel good. The next sitting, you know, we're struggling with restlessness and sleepiness, and, uh, and we get, you know, a sense of self arises that has got an unpleasant flavor to it. So one could say, well, you know, how many selves have you experienced so far today? Probably quite a lot, and the day's not yet over. 
this phenomenon of self is something that appears and then disappears, appears and then disappears. From the, the field of perception, the whole field of perception in any moment, we pick out some feature of it and then cling to it, identify with it, and the sense of self arises around it. And there are many moments when that's just not happening. Or at least it's not happening in the obvious way that shows itself as the inner critic, that shows itself as really negative self-view. And this, see, we need to see this process happening. We need to see how clinging to something, attaching to something, identifying with something brings up this sense of self. I mean, think of the emotions where the sense of self is most strong. Anger, jealousy, loneliness, guilt, shame. We can see that in each of those cases, what, what's happening is there's a thought, a perception that has an unpleasant flavour to it that we're clinging to tightly. And there's this strong, painful, wounded sense of self that arises. And then sometime later, it's no longer there. It's no longer there. And do you see that what this shows the inner critic to be is simply an aversive-laden thought that we've identified with in a moment and have developed a habit of identifying with. We're used to having a thought that may say, I'm a useless meditator, or I'm a bad parent, or I'm a whatever it may be, I'm a poor friend, or you know, I look ugly, or whatever, we, whatever our particular trip is. That thought comes up, we cling to it, and a sense of self gets created, and we get into a habit of doing that. And that's all it is. It's a thought that we've gotten used to clinging to and identifying with. It, with. And just because you've had that thought 10,000 times doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it who you are. Ultimately, it's just a thought. Without the clinging, without the identifying with that thought, the inner critic is nothing. It's nothing. It's just a wisp of thought coming and going in a moment. And there's a real opportunity to practice seeing this again and again and again. That when in those moments where we feel a strong critical voice within us, to notice what thought am I clinging to? Probably a familiar thought. So rather than making a self out of it, can we just see that that's all that's going on? There's just this identification with a thought. No one is born with the inner critic. No one is born with a habit of self-judgment. 
It's something we've learnt. Sometimes it's something we've been taught. And it's something we can unlearn as well. We can, Nelson Mandela said, if people can be taught to hate, they can also be taught to love. And, and it just takes practice. It takes seeing it again and again. And a real commitment to the aliveness and the freedom that comes as we see through this illusion. Now, as I, as I said earlier, I think part of the way this habit works is by comparing us, by, by either by a comparison with how we imagine other people to be, or by a comparison with some imagined ideal. And, I, and I'd like to read a short passage um, by Ed Brown, who is a Zen teacher who's written a whole bunch of cookbooks. He was the, uh, the, the cook at the Tassajara Zen Monastery um, in California. And uh, he wrote the Tassajara Bread Book and other books like that that some, some people here may know. And he talks about this phenomenon like this. <clears throat> when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow a recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I'd made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick, you added milk in the mix and then blobbed the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The, the biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on a pan and baked them. I really liked those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? People who ate my biscuits would extol their virtues, eating one after another. But to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheaty, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real. They were incomparably alive. In fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating. These moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison 
to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savouring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what the bisquick Zen student looked like. (laughs) Calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was looking good. (laughs) We've all done it, trying to look good as a husband, a wife, or a parent trying to attain perfection, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say. Wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? I love that. (laughs) And, And I do think that we're wise to take his advice about the home cooking. You know, it's it's said in the Buddhist discourses that that the, and this is a rather antique way of saying it, but the proximate cause for the arising of metta is seeing the good in someone. And so I'd really invite you as part of your metta practice to take some time to look at the home cooking, to, to, to see the good in yourself. This is a an ancient Buddhist practice of really reflecting on our good actions, values, and intentions. As Jack Cornfield sometimes points out, if if we're asked to to name our bad actions, lots of hands go up and people are very happy to volunteer all the things they feel they've done wrong. And we can be so much more reticent, perhaps particularly as English people, um, those of us who are, uh, about our good Actions And it's a really healthy and mature and heart-opening thing to take some time even to write down actions that you can remember that you're really glad you did. Actions that somehow remind you of your own goodness. To write down the things that you value, that you really respect yourself for. Maybe the values that brought you to this retreat. The values that you have that you can really admire. The intentions that you're really trying to live by. Even if you're aware of the ways you don't live up to them. To write down the intentions that you admire. These are all ways in which we reteach ourselves our loveliness, in which we really open ourselves for self-blessing. And as I say, it's a, a good thing to take time to write them down and to reflect on them and to let them nourish and inspire and open you to this meta practice.
Rob quoted this morning those words from the Buddha, which I'll just say again because I think they're so wonderful, really, to yeah, to open ourselves to. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. So let's just sit for a few moments together. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.